Well, this morning as we uh, prepare to share in the elements of the Lord's Supper before we go into preaching of the Word, and I'll introduce myself a little bit more later, but my name is Rob Walker. I work with the Northwest Baptist Convention. Your pastor, Mike, has asked me to come and uh, fill the pulpit while he's in Hawaii. And while I want to be happy for him, I'm a little bit bitter um, because that sounds pretty nice right now, but that's okay. We will miss him. I'm thankful that I could come and celebrate on this Holy Week. Palm Sunday historically begins our observation of the Easter season, and traditionally, Palm Sunday is the day that the church remembers that triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as he begins that very intentional but final march towards the cross. So on Palm Sunday, Jesus entered into Jerusalem as a king, bringing peace And it's interesting to me that as he entered into Jerusalem, we all read about all the applause and the praise of the crowds that just a few days later will be calling for the death of Jesus. Now, in that holy week, in that week before his crucifixion, Jesus is going to cleanse the temple. He's going to confront the Pharisees for their corruption and their abuse. He's going to teach his disciples about how to look for his imminent return. He'll share the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, which we will commemorate in a moment establishing that as an ordinance of the church. He'll be betrayed by Judas, placed on trial. Following his trial, he will be beaten and scourged at the hands of the Roman soldiers. He'll be forced to carry the instrument of his own death. He'll be crucified, killed on a cross at Golgotha, buried in a borrowed tomb. Now, I say borrowed because he ain't going to be using it for long. And then in a very powerful display of God's power, He will be miraculously, gloriously resurrected. So all in all, quite the week. Well, I want to thank you again for the the chance to be here and worship with you today. Um, As I said earlier, my name is Rob Walker, and I am... Now, I I joke about the title um, of my actual job. I am the evangelism church health, church planting strategist for Region 4 of the Northwest Baptist Convention. It's ridiculous. What that means, however, is that I am just basically the head cheerleader for churches in Oregon, except for Portland, because we don't talk about Portland. Um, that's a, that is an entity in and of itself, but I pretty much have the rest of the state. Um, now, part of what we do, and, and you may not understand necessarily how Southern Baptist polity works, but we are not a denomination. We are a convention. It's in the name, and there's a big difference. In a denomination, there is some kind of an oversight authority over the congregations that are part of that denomination. As a convention, however, we are a group of autonomous congregations that cooperatively work together for the advancement of the kingdom. As such, when I come here as a, a representative of the Northwest Baptist Convention, I have no authority. We simply exist to serve the local church because the local church is the authority. It is not my place to come in and tell you how to reach the community that God has placed you in. We believe it's our job to come in and assist you do what the Holy Spirit is leading you to do in your context. Because what might work in one place probably isn't going to work in another. Um, And so it's a joy that I get to do that. Up until December of last year, I had pastored in Cresswell, Oregon. I was a pastor at New Hope Baptist Church over there for about the last eight years. Then I moved up from the south 
uh, before that. In fact, that's still our home church. I still live in Cresswell, and uh, it's, it's a good central location uh, just for reaching out into the state. And so um, a lot of what I do, again, is just simply to come and to serve the churches, to help the churches achieve health uh, and vision, especially life after COVID. But we also understand that healthy pastors lead healthy churches, and so a lot of what I do is invest in and lead and support pastors in the work that God's calling them to do. And let me just be an advocate for your pastor now. I joke about being jealous about him being in Hawaii, but after the last couple of years, brother needs a break. He needs that. And, and I've always heard it said, if you want a better pastor, pray for the one you've got. And I've enjoyed getting to know Mike. I've enjoyed hearing his heart. And uh, I'm, I'm praying that he does have a time to rest, relax, and refocus as he comes back prepared to lead the service. But this morning, I want to share with you kind of my story and what the Lord has taught me in the last few years. And out of the overflow of what God has taught me, I want to encourage you today. Um, Now, in the front of my Bible, I have a couple of things that are written down, really two verses in there. The first one's one, um, the Lord gave me this passage, this verse, probably 20 years ago now, and it just stuck with me. It's from 2 Samuel 24, 24. I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. And that, I think, is where the Lord really convicted me on the cost of following Christ. He gave everything to pursue us. Do I presume that it would cost me nothing to follow him? And that's one of the great paradoxes of the Christian walk. Salvation is free, and yet it costs you everything. And, and so I, that's one of those verses uh, on sacrifice that stuck out to me. And then there, there's another one probably about 10 years ago, the Lord also brought to my heart, Job thirteen fifteen. though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Now, I got to tell you, the Lord gave me those, those verses that really kind of stuck with me at two very different times in my spiritual journey. And I never really connected those two verses together before. I've always thought about, you know, I'll not offer to God that which cost me nothing. Hey, that's a great one, by the way, when you're preaching on giving, right? Tithing, finances, whatever it might be. And then, you know, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's one that you would preach on or you would go to when you're facing trials and hardship. But let's face it, y'all, over the last couple years, well, the Lord's kind of bridged that gap for me, kind of connecting those two together. We often think about offering to God um, something in terms of, of money, but what happens when you offer God your life and that becomes costly? What happens when we face trials, uncertainty, hardships, and it does, it becomes emotionally spiritually costly. Do we, do we still trust in him? Like I said, I know that the last couple of years have been really difficult, very discouraging at times. We, we have faced some very significant trials. Now, we're coming, hopefully, out of this COVID mess. And as we, as we move forward, we really do, as the church, we need to embrace the future with faith. And as you do, I want to encourage you this morning. I hope to help direct maybe your prayer life a little bit. I want to remind you that the great power uh, of Easter, the great power of the resurrection that serves uh, as the basis of our hope in the face of difficulties is the power that's at work in us still today. 
And so this morning I do, I want to, I'm going to be just very open and honest with you about how the Lord has, has walked in, in my life and in the life of my family over the last year and how those two verses really kind of moved out of theology and theory and into practice instead. Now, we had our first hint of issues back in October of 2018. I, honestly, up until then, things were clipping along pretty good for the old Walker family. Um, my wife and my wife, Christian, my, I've got a daughter. Uh, she's, I don't know, how old is she? A better dad would know that. 22, 23. But in 2018, our daughter, she was engaged. Now, I've also got a younger son. I'll tell you a little about him in a minute. Um, but we were really enjoying our time as a family. Um, it was really, we loved the man that, that my wife married, a godly young man. Um, we, we were thrilled. That was a sweet season of life for us. And then about that same time, like I said, October, 2018, my wife started getting really bad migraine headaches. Her, her vision would get blurry. She would get dizzy. At times, it would just happen while she's driving down the road. She'd have to pull off and just park on the side of the road because she was so dizzy, she couldn't even see straight. Now, initially, her doctor wasn't super worried, but she started having to track her blood pressure. And then she started having to record her blood pressure in the morning and in the evening. And then she had to record her blood pressure on the right side and in the left side in the morning and in the evening. And her blood pressure was going up and they would give her medications. And really, the medications had no effect on the blood pressure. In November of 2018, I take her to this walk-in clinic because she felt like she was coming down with something. She said she just didn't feel right. They took her blood pressure, and it was, it was like 227 over 180, which if you're familiar with blood pressure, that's like stroke level. In, in fact, at the walk-in clinic, they said, we are not legally allowed to see you here. You have two options. We can call an ambulance, and they can take her to the hospital, or you can drive her to the hospital yourself, but we can't even see you at this point. Um, her fingers were going numb. They were just like white and ice cold. Uh, like I said, they just sent her straight to the hospital. Cue the next six months of just trying to figure out what's going on. Get a diagnosis of what the problem is. Her blood pressure for that whole six months was consistently in that 220 over 180 range. She started having a lot of back pain. Uh, we were eventually referred to a vascular surgeon who discovered that her renal arteries, um, which are the arteries that supply blood flow to your kidneys, but those renal arteries were actually restricting blood flow to the kidneys. In fact, one of those was almost completely closed off, which was causing the back pain because one of her kidneys was shutting down. Uh, turns out your organs need blood, right? Who knew? Um, but at least we think, finally, we know what's wrong, you know? Blood flow's not going there. Restore blood flow, problem solved. He's going to go in. We think this vascular surgeon's going to put a stent in there. Problem solved. We go back on about our happy little ordered life. In May of 2019, we go back to the vascular surgeon there in Springfield for some imaging to be done on her re renal arteries, and we think he's going to schedule a surgery to put in a stent. We were wrong. <laughs> Dr. Veramontes comes in, and he tells us her arteries... They're not blocked, they're collapsing. He said that he can't do surgery on them because her arteries are too brittle to handle it and she would immediately bleed out and die on the table. In fact, he said, there's, there's nothing that I can do. And I, 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 you might know this, but your blood vessels are kind of like an onion and that there's a lot of different layers. And what was happening was the internal layers of her blood vessels were collapsing 
on themselves, restricting blood flow to her organs. He says, there's nothing I can do, and he sent her to a rheumatologist. You know, in the meantime, life goes on. We're about a week away from our daughter's wedding at this point. Family and friends, they're getting ready to start arriving from all over the world. At the same time, the school year is coming to an end. We just kind of decide we're going to tuck all this on the back burner. We're going to enjoy our daughter's wedding. The last day of school comes, and our son, he's a freshman at this time, and his friends, they want to have this after-school party at the home of one of the kids in their friend group. They've got a rock quarry out there, and it's just a really good swimming hole. Um, they're going to be out there. A lot of kids are there. A lot of parents are going to be there. And, you know, yeah, you guys have fun. Late that afternoon, I get a call from my wife saying, get over there now. Um, our son's best friend was swimming with him and went under the water and never came back up. They had, their group had been swimming in the quarry, and, and, and it wasn't even big. I mean, it was like 30 feet of, uh, of wide where, where this happened, but uh, there was a little floating island kind of out in the middle of it. There's a slide on the other side, and my son asked his friend, uh, hey, let's swim over to the other side, and we'll go down the slide. Um, as they're going over there, my son's friend, Gio, he, he said, I'm getting tired. And as my son turned around to check on him, my son said all he saw where his fingertips go under in three bubbles. That was it. You know, just the day before, this kid's in our home eating our food, and I'm grumbling about how all these these boys are just going to put us in the poorhouse because of the cost of groceries, and now he's gone. We were crushed. My son was devastated. He blamed himself for asking him to swim across. He blamed himself because he couldn't get there in time when he first went under. I mean, the grief was overwhelming. We had a wedding in a week. Now, the wedding, I'll tell you, it was a pleasant distraction. In God's providence, it was a good thing to have friends and family that loved us and that we loved there during that time. And we were, we were somewhat able to com- kind of compartmentalize things like you have to do. We, we really enjoyed Lindsay's wedding. But it, it was really strange, though, to have such grief and such joy mixed together at the same time. I officiated my daughter's wedding, and two days later, I, I officiated the memorial service of my son's friend. We were numb, but we were moving forward. In the meantime, my wife's health continued to decline, and um, and it's not as she was unhealthy to begin with. I mean, she was preparing to run a half marathon in good health, but it just, just shoom, sunk. And it, it still was taking a long time to get a diagnosis. We knew what was wrong, but we didn't know what was causing it and why. We had no idea the actual issue that was taking place. And then in late August of 2019, one night, I still don't really know how to wrap my mind around this, and and this sounds really weird, but Jesus appeared to me in a dream. Now, now don't freak out. I'm still a Baptist. I'm, I'm not some holy roller. I know that it was just a dream. In no way is it equated to the Word of God or anything like that. But in my dream, Kristen and I were walking along and we're holding hands, and I dream that Jesus walks up to us. I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, he 
he walks up to us, and I, and I couldn't see his face, but I knew it was him, and I don't know any other way to put that. And he said, Rob, you've been holding her hand for 27 years now. You're going to have to let me hold her hand for a while. Of course <laughs> Of course, Jesus, I want you to hold my wife's hand. It was the most natural thing in the world to simply hand her hand over to him. No hesitation, no grief, no sorrow. It was like, well, I'm sorry I've had it the last 27 years. Jesus, you should have had it the whole time. Take it. And he took her hand and they start to walk off and I'm standing there and I asked him, am I ever going to get it back? What I'm asking is, is she going to die? And he stopped, and he just turned, and he paused, and didn't say anything. No answer. But I didn't need an answer. Like, in that moment, it was okay. Now, immediately I woke up, and I experienced, you know, when people talk about that peace that passes all understanding, I mean, that's those are... Those are words on a page until you experience that for yourself. And I woke up and I experienced the greatest peace I have ever experienced in my life. And, I, and, and the only way I can even wrap my head around it to explain it is that it was the complete and total absence of any anxiety at all. And I remember thinking, whatever's coming must be serious, but that's okay. Because Jesus has her by the hand. Two weeks later, the storm hit. Kristen went in for some imaging on her abdomen. We had been waiting. It took like three months to get this uh, an MRA scan done on her abdomen that the rheumatologist had ordered. Apparently, what he suspected her of having was so rare, there was no code for it. The insurance company, if there's no code, is just like, yeah, there's nothing we can do. I mean, it took a lot of fighting. Uh, and I spent a day on the phone with the insurance company. I said, you're based in Seattle. I'll be up there in the morning. You're going to tell me no to my face. Um, I, probably not my finest moment, but I was done. Hour later, we're approved. The next day, we're in there getting the scan. During the scan, she's laying there, and she starts to have severe pain. I mean, really bad pain. And you want to talk about in God's perfect timing. Now, it had taken months to get that scan done, and they did this MRA at the exact moment that her mesenteric artery, which is the main artery that supplies blood flow to all your major internal organs, started collapsing, and they caught it in the imaging. I mean, had, it, had, had she done the scan five minutes earlier, they would have missed it. But they caught it at the perfect moment. Next morning, by then, Kristen, they've got her in the hospital. They're saying, we don't think she's ever coming out. I mean, once your blood flow... Once damage is done to your organs, it's not undone. But we finally got the diagnosis. It's an autoimmune disease, polyarteritis nodosa with necrotizing vasculitis. It's, it's a disease. Necrotizing vasculitis just means your, your blood vessels are dying. And what happens was, it, it was it's this very rare disease, and, and really the prospects of survival depended on how quickly they could restore blood flow where it needed to go. Um, but, but essentially, her immune system started to attack her blood vessels, causing them to break down. The next four months, y'all, were tough. In order to suppress her immune system and let her arteries kind of catch up and heal, they gave her some really strong 
doses of chemo. Y'all know if you've known someone that's been through that or you've been through, those, those are dark days. You know, moments where Kristen's so sick, she, she could barely walk from the bedroom to the living room. Times I, she couldn't pick herself up off the floor. That's I know that some of you have experienced that. That's difficult. And yet through all of that, I knew Jesus is holding her hand. It's okay. Live or die, it's okay because Jesus has her hand. And in January of 2020, one day, she just felt better. Like blood pressure normal, kidney stopped hurting, just fine. A couple weeks later with the rheumatologist appointment, he looks at her and he has this new imaging done. Now, he's always been kind of the Eeyore of the group, kind of very somber, very, well, it's probably not going to work, but we're going to try this anyway. Um, very cautious. Um, he, he comes in looking at this new imagery and he goes, well, um, you don't seem to have damage anymore. That's good news. And he made it sound like it was raining. Um he goes, we won't use the word remission until you've been symptom-free for at least five years because this just doesn't go away. Two months later, in another round of tests, he comes in and says, you're in remission. He says, there's no medical explanation for this. In fact, when we followed up with her vascular surgeon, he's like, I thought she was dead. But her rheumatologist says, there's literally, there's nothing to treat. Um... Her, her kidneys that were damaged. Your vascular surgeon said, you're going to need to go in. If you survive this, you'll have to have a kidney transplant. Her kidneys are functioning fine. Like it's just one day she wakes up and it just never happened. Now, she's still not back to full speed because that, that medicine's just as bad as the disease sometimes. You know, she's lost some stamina. She gets tired easily. But it would seem that at least for the time I got her hand back, and then I remember Kristen and I, we look back and we laugh at this now, but I remember New Year's Eve of 2019, after the year that we had had, we just kind of had this exasperated look on our face as we looked at each other and we're like, I am so glad this year is over. Bring on 2020. <laughs> right? Hey, COVID, how you doing? Yep. And we rolled right into two years of COVID. And that was the most difficult time as a pastor I've experienced. How do you, how do you, gather the flock and protect the flock? How do you honor the, the authorities that God has placed over you and still fulfill the commands of God's word that you gather together as believers? There's a line between faith and foolishness, and I don't always know where it is. That was a difficult time. Now, I tell you that story, that part of my testimony, so that you can know. There is a tension between grief and joy that is something that only followers of Jesus can truly understand. Those were very dark, trying days for us. And yet, at no time did the Lord take away our joy and our delight in Him. It was so strange because we were completely broken and at the same time, never more whole. He strengthened our confidence in His sovereign authority. We knew that Jesus kept watch over us during that storm. We knew that Jesus had us by the hand and that live or die, it's okay because our King has conquered death. And because of that, there's no reason to fear. It's been a tough go. 
But I can tell you that despite all of that, Jesus is worth it. This morning, there's a passage of Scripture I want to share with you that really I think the Lord gave to me in that time. Um, and it really it reminded me of the great hope that we have in our Savior. It kind of helped walk me through how do I pray for my family? How do I pray for my church? When, in all honesty, there's days I didn't even want to get out of bed. It reminded me that my hope is not tied to my circumstances. It reminded me that my great hope is in my Savior. It reminded me that God is at work in the lives of me and my loved one during times of trial, during times of discouragement, all because the same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in us. And when we celebrate the resurrection, I, we, honestly, as a pastor, I never made a huge deal out of Easter because every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. I mean, the, the rest of the world might show up on Easter Sunday, but let's just face it, Jesus is alive and risen every single day. And because of that, that is worthy of celebration. But I want to remind you this morning that, that the power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that walks with us in those trials. It's the power that's at work within us even now. Paul writes about that power. It's in Ephesians chapter 1 that we're going to look at this morning. And I want to focus in on it. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And I'll read this passage for us now. So Paul writes, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the Lord's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, it's interesting to me, as Paul begins to pour out his heart to the people of God in this passage, his first words are, for this reason. Now, just a little hint, when y'all are studying Scripture, if you come up on something like that, you need to back up and see for what reason is Paul referring to. This phrase lets us know that Paul wants to help them understand something that he has already spoken about. Now, I won't go into all of it this morning, but immediately before this section in Ephesians 1, Paul has written in his introduction to the letter this glowingly hopeful reminder of the blessings of those in Christ. He talks about those in Christ that have been given every spiritual blessing. Literally, in Christ, you are lacking nothing. He says they have been chosen, they've been made holy and blameless, they've been adopted into God's family, lavished with grace, united to Jesus, blessed by the gospel, and sealed for eternity with the Holy Spirit of God. He's written a lot in that introduction to Ephesians. And so when Paul writes, for this reason, he is basically telling them, in light of all these blessings, I want you to know that I am praying that you will simply understand everything that you have been given in Jesus Christ. 
And so this morning, I want to remind you of that great hope that we have based in the reality of the power that is at work in us as well. And as we're reminded of the hope, I think we would be wise to start as Paul starts. I want to urge you, begin with prayer. And not just any prayer. I want you to see here, Paul in this passage offers some very specific and powerful prayers. And yet in his prayer, he begins with the spirit of gratitude. For this reason, ever since I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. You want to know how Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus? He started off with the spirit of gratitude in his prayer life. He says, remembering you in my prayers. Now, I want you to know I'm thankful for Calvary Church here. This is a local body of believers in a community just at the base of the mountains that is a beautiful expression of the church of Jesus Christ. Throughout all of time, anybody on the planet that's ever existed, God has chosen you to be his representatives in this community during this time. You are a beacon of light and hope here in your community. And y'all, let's face it, Oregon is a spiritually dark community one of the darkest in the nation. And yet this church serves as a gospel outpost. A light in the darkness that offers truth and hope to those that are in need. It's easy for us to get discouraged. It's easy to get distracted. But this congregation, let's be clear, is part of the bride of Christ, holy and set apart. And one day Jesus will return for you and claim you as his own, making you perfect, the Bible says. The Bible says that you will be prepared without wrinkle, stain, or blemish as the bride of Christ. We must always remember with gratitude that which the Father has set aside for the Son. Your church is sacred and holy, and you should thank God for the congregation that he has placed you in. And so when I think of Calvary, I do it with the spirit of gratitude, as you should as well. And I echo Paul's prayer when, I, when he says, I haven't stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Um, the, the Northwest Baptist Convention, we've got about 500 churches in, uh, in the convention. We're, we're part of Oregon, Washington, and then part of Idaho. Um, every morning, we get a list of churches. We've got about 10 churches every morning that we roll through it. We pray together for as a staff. We're frequently praying for this church specifically because we understand with gratitude this is a beautiful expression of the bride of Christ. And so Paul says, I continue to remember you in my prayers. And I want to tell you, as you've remembered to pray for your church, I want you to see the rest of this passage then is a beautiful guide for how I think you can specifically pray, not just for your church, but how you can pray for your family, your friends, your loved ones. He says, verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. As you pray for your loved ones, as you pray for your church, pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know him better. You want to talk about an earnestness in his prayer? This isn't a one and done prayer, by the way. Paul says, I keep asking. Paul shows a continual pattern of prayer for this church. And let me encourage you, be just as diligent in your prayers as well. But now consider the incredible content of what Paul is asking, that the Father will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation that you would know him better. 
Now, earlier in chapter 1, Paul told the Ephesian church about the incredible depth and beauty of what God has done in saving them. And now he says that his prayer is they just begin to grasp the, the reality of what has been done. What more could you ask for? What better prayer is there for your church than this one? And as I said, not just the church. This is one as we were struggling as a family that God gave me to pray for my wife, to pray for my children, now my grandchildren. I got, I got one a year and a half old, another one. Oh, Lindsay's having contractions even today. So hopefully soon. This will be the prayer for, for them as well. But to pray that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation that they might know Christ better. That is the goal, is it not? Knowing him better. So what better prayer for your church as well? And Paul doesn't stop with this. He goes on. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you have been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in, the holy, in, in his holy people. As you pray, pray for our eyes to be open so that we may know hope to which we've been called. Now, this might seem super simple, just a, a silly illustration, but just everybody close your eyes for a minute. Now, some of you old guys in the back, your eyes have been closed for 10 minutes. You were just ahead of the game, but that's all right. Um, I'm talking about you, man. Um, just close your eyes for a second. Can you see the people around you? Of course you can't. Your eyes are closed, right? But are there people that are still around you? Of course they are. Go ahead and open your eyes back up and look around, right? You see people with your eyes open now that just a few moments ago you were unable to see even though they were there. I think that's very similar to what Paul is praying, praying that our eyes would be open. If you can't see what God has done, it's not because it isn't there. It's because your eyes are closed to it. And you're missing what is there. Paul is saying, just see what is there. As you pray for your church, pray for open eyes. Pray for eyes that see where God is at work. And be assured, church, that he is at work. Paul is trying to get people to realize the incredible riches that are found in God through Jesus Christ. And he is praying for God to open their eyes to show them the reality that is available to them. Why? He says, so that you might know hardship and trials hope get this you have been called to hope and let's be clear hope in scripture is the absolute certainty of future good now i'm an oklahoma boy every year i uh, the football season starts out man i hope the sooners win the natty this year and every year they break my heart by losing to some stupid team they got no business to lose into, and they don't make it. And then I watch Georgia or Alabama play in the final, and I'm like, well, I'm kind of glad we didn't have to play them, right? I hope that Oklahoma wins, but I'm not making plans to buy a ticket to the Sugar Bowl yet, you know? When Scripture talks about hope, this is an absolute certainty or expectation with confidence. Christians can have hope firm assurance that God will do good to us in the future because Christ has purchased salvation for us on the cross in the past. He changes us through his spirit in the present, and he will lead us to glory in the future. That is sure and certain hope. And so Paul begins this prayer then that they would see the great hope of their calling, and then he leads us to this. He leads us to pray that we will understand the riches of his inheritance in the saints. Verse 18. 
Now, when we think about inheritance, we normally think in terms of something that we are going to receive, right? I mean, my retirement plan involves somebody dying and leaving a lot of money to me. Otherwise, I can make it to like next Thursday, right? An inheritance is something that we expect that we will get, but that is not what Paul is saying here. Paul encourages us that we are Jesus's inheritance. It's not about what we gain, it's about what Christ gets. I'll be honest, that seems like a really bad trade for him. We believers are his inheritance, Paul tells us. So be encouraged, church. You are God's inheritance. You are his treasure, his prize. And that we belong to God is an awesome thought. We are his own possession. In all honesty, this thought, I think, is too great to fully comprehend in this life. And that's why Paul is just praying that we would simply begin to understand the reality of what is. He says, we have the seal of the Holy Spirit, of the living God, more accurately, not on us, but in us, guaranteeing that inheritance. And so this prayer is that we would know the hope to which we've been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and finally, and and this is the kicker that I want us to focus on as we go into Passion Week with Easter coming up next week. He says, Pray that we would know the incomparably great power that is at work within us. Verse 19. And his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So think about that, this Palm Sunday, as we prepare ourselves to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior next week, I want to remind you that your hope, that our hope, is based in the power of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And Paul's prayer is that we would recognize the work of that power in our lives and in our churches. Yes, the power that raised Christ from the dead the power that has seated Christ at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms, the power that has placed Christ above all rule and all authority, that has established Christ above all power and all dominion, far above every title that can be given, above not all things now but forever, that's the power at work in us today. That is the power in your church now. And Paul's saying, I just wish you could see it. My prayer is that you would realize what already is. You see, Christ is seated above sin and death, the world, Satan. We're not fighting for victory. We are fighting from a position that is already victorious. Open your eyes, Paul tells us. Christ is placed above whatever trials you might face. Heartbreak, uncertainty, sickness, fear, worry, COVID, some politician in Washington, whatever it is, Christ is better. Christ is more powerful. And you, he says, are in Christ. Open your eyes to see what is already there. Why? Verse 22, because God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Remember, God has placed all things under Christ. Have you lost your hope? Open your eyes. Your hope is Christ. Are you worried about what the future holds? Open your eyes because Christ is your future. We can face the future with courage because God has placed all things under Christ. At times, it might not feel that way, but that is still our unchanging reality nonetheless. God has placed all things under Christ. Paul doesn't say, you know, if you just hold on, if you just work hard, if you do the right things, if you say the right things, just be patient, just be faithful, just be diligent, and someday God is going to take control. No, Paul prays that our eyes will be open to what is already true, the unchanging reality is that God has placed all things under Christ now. He is currently the ruling, reigning, all-sovereign king of all creation. We don't have to wait for him to someday establish his kingdom. All authority has already been placed under him. And the Bible says he remains the head of this church. I want to remind you, even though the last few years they've been difficult, they've been challenging, we're not unique in that. Y'all have experienced hardships too. But understand this, Jesus has you by the hand. Ultimately, Jesus is the head of this church, and he is certainly capable of caring for and providing for his bride. I know many of you have been through difficult, honestly at times heartbreaking transition and hardship. We've all faced it. But church, be encouraged. We are led ultimately by the good shepherd himself. We've heard with derision the term, you're just a bunch of sheep. For the last two years, no matter what you believe, whether you're pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine, whether you think COVID is real or think it was a plot to get Trump out of office, whatever it is, we've been called sheep. You're just a sheep. Believe in what you're told. And yet the Bible says we are sheep under the care of the good shepherd. What a beautiful thing that is. Paul reminds us that the reason we can move forward in hope that Jesus Christ is the head of his church. Don't forget that. When we celebrate Easter this week, as we consider, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate next Sunday, let's consider that the power that took a dead man out of the grave and has seated him above all things is the power, Paul says, that's at work in my life, in your life, in the life of this church. As we close this morning, I'll tell you this. Jesus is your hope. Now, I I don't know you. For all I know, you could all be a bunch of godless heathens. You seem like you're okay, but I've been fooled before. I don't know where you stand with Jesus Christ. My prayer for you is that you would be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might know him better. And if you don't know him today, you can know him. If you've not committed your life to Christ, if you'd like to know more about what that looks like, I would love to have that conversation with you when the service is over. I'm happy to talk to you about that. And I recognize I'm the guest here. Maybe you're not comfortable talking to me. Let me tell you, ask any member here how you might know Christ. Let them tell you the reason for the hope they have in him as their Savior. Let them tell you how you can know him as well. My prayer 
that you be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might know him better in order that you might know the hope to which he has called you. That hope is founded in the power of a resurrected Jesus that has been given authority over all things in the church. He is the head of the church. That's us as well. Let me pray, and then I believe we'll just dismiss from here.